Hey, good morning and thanks for joining us. Small group leaders, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for leading and serving during this time. A lot of us feel isolated and disconnected. Um, and leading a group takes a little bit of extra courage. So thank you for doing that. If we were meeting in person, I would be asking everyone to stand up and give uh, some encouragement and appreciation. So let's do that with a hand clap this morning. If you are new with us, we just started a series last weekend uh, talking about the church and culture. We're talking about the people of God and we're talking about the world in which we live. And we're talking about the vision that God has uh, for how this relationship might work. Uh, and if you missed the message last weekend, I encourage you to check it out online. But let me try and give you a very quick summary of what we talked about last weekend. So why is this important? Well, the church and, culture, church and culture have not had the best relationship. There's a lot of misperception and misconceptions on both sides of the relationship. One example is a friend that um, called me a couple uh, months ago and was wondering about the status of the church because he had been reading articles about how churches were not listening to medical advice and not doing social distancing. And because of an aberrant few, he had thought maybe the church in general wasn't listening to medical advice. And that plays into some of the stereotypes that people have of the church and why some people fear the church because it's unthinking or because people think uh, we're not wise in how we handle ourselves or maybe that we don't listen to science and medical advice. And on the other hand, there's a, a fair number of church folks that have uh, probably an unfair image of what the world consists of. And I grew up in a church or I came to faith in a church, for instance, that banned dancing. Now, that was a cultural reaction that certainly didn't come from Scripture. And we have aberrant things like that because, because of people's fear of culture. And so let me get into some definitions today as we get started. What is culture? Culture is what we human beings make of the world. And there can be good things that we can make and bad things. What is the church? When I speak of the church, I don't mean the building. We don't go to church. We don't attend church. We are the church. The church is the new community of people who have put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And finally, we talked about uh, the five C's. And the five C's summarize how the church can have a more nuanced relationship with culture. We can condemn, copy, critique, consume, and create. And as God's people, we really need to get back to creating. So uh, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the intersection of the church and mental health. Now, even though the pandemic is ongoing and there are a lot of negative things going on, there's a bit of a ray of hope in the sense that I've seen a lot of positive messaging going on around the topic of mental health. Uh, a couple examples that you'll note in the media. Uh, the CDC has a website and if you go there to look up um, how to take care of yourself physically, you'll also note that they have a little section on mental health awareness. And I find this pretty encouraging that a resource page has something to point people toward looking out after their mental condition. 
The second is an article from the Washington Post. And the Washington Post uh, cites a danger that we need to be aware of, that the coronavirus pandemic is pushing America into a mental health crisis. And it talks about a study that was uh, done back in 2007 linking the unemployment rate with an increase in the suicide rate in America. Now, I don't find that statistic encouraging at all, but I do find that the topic of mental health, because it's being covered in media, is an encouraging development. Now, uh, I'd like to do three things today as we get into the message. And the first is, I like to talk about why talking about mental health is actually challenging and difficult. It's not easy to talk about mental health, and there's two reasons why, at least two reasons why. The second thing I like to do is talk about why I think the church needs to be involved in this topic. Why does the church need to be talking about mental health? And the third thing that we're going to do today is a little bit different. We've, we're going to do a panel. Uh, I've invited three special guests to share a bit of their stories uh, and how their work in mental health um, is part of their calling from God. So we're going to have Jessica Lewis, uh, Jenny Wang, and Victor Chow sharing in an online panel. But first of all, let's talk about why this is a difficult topic uh, to get into. Back in 2019, Vox Culture, which is the nonprofit that Access started back in 2008, uh, last year we had uh, a focus on mental health advocacy. So we worked with some nonprofits, we talked to local artists, and we got a lot of traction around this. And one of the things I noticed uh, through the storytelling and the advocacy work was that a theme kept coming up. The theme was the problem of mental health stigmas. And that's the first issue for why this is a difficult topic to talk about. Uh, a stigma is kind of a negative mark, uh, a, a belief that something uh, that a character trait or a quality that a person possesses leads to uh, negative outcomes. Well, let me explain it this way. The American Psychological Association writes an article about this and they cite this. Despite decades of public information campaigns costing tens of millions of dollars, Americans may be as suspicious of people with mental health illness as ever. New research by Pesco Salido, published in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior, finds 68% of Americans do not want someone with mental illness marrying into their family, and 58% do not want people with mental illness in their workplace. About 76 million Americans who live with the fear that others may find out about their disorder and think less of them or even keep them from getting jobs or promotions. Um, so there's a stigma around mental health. Uh, some more facts and figures, and this comes from Mental Health America, which is a large nonprofit in America that works toward mental health advocacy. I really enjoyed working with them last year with Vox Culture, and if they have a volunteer opportunity, I strongly encourage you to help with that. But they say uh, from their research, more than 10 million adults have an unmet need for mental health treatment. Uh, this statistic has not declined since 2011. And what these statistics are telling us is this. There is a big gap 
between people who are experiencing mental health challenges and the help that they could get for something that is treatable or something that they could find help for. And because of this gap, uh, we're also seeing that some people who could get help are not getting it, or some people who are getting help are not following through with their medication or their programs to find health and healing. Now, if you continue doing a little bit more digging, this is also interesting. Minority communities, people of color, actually experience higher incidences of mental health illness and associated stigmas that go with those mental health challenges. So in the Black and the Latino and the Asian American communities, we find a higher occurrences of mental health illnesses and also mental health stigmas. And that leads us to our second challenge that also begins with the letter S, and that is shame. For uh, a number of different reasons, it's difficult to talk about mental health because there is an associated shame. Now, Brene Brown, um, who's a great author and who talks a lot about shame, gives us this definition for what shame is. It's an intensely painful feeling or experience of, of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced done or fail to do makes us unworthy of connection. Now shame is different from a stigma in the sense that stigma is like a, a belief that something is negative and so therefore there might be some negative consequences. Shame is like shunning somebody, uh, blocking them socially from belonging. So if we shame someone or um, letting them or not letting them belong. If we believe in those shameful beliefs for ourselves, we are disconnecting ourselves um, because we think we are unworthy. Now in Luke chapter 7, we encounter the story of Jesus as he's invited to have dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus over and while they're reclining at the table having dinner together, a woman comes from the village and she's so filled with emotion she begins weeping at Jesus' feet. Tears fill her eyes and they begin to drop on Jesus' feet and she begins to use her hair to clean his feet and all the while Simon the Pharisee is observing this and thinking, oh, this, this shouldn't happen. I mean, how could Jesus let this happen to him? She's a woman with a sinful reputation and God shouldn't be allowing this to happen. If he were truly from God, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. This is kind of the dilemma of shame. It's this idea of unworthiness. And for some people who experience shame as a result, as it um, comes from mental illness, think, well, maybe because I struggle with uh, depression or with anxiety or maybe schizophrenia I I don't belong to God or God doesn't really uh, want anything to do with me this is how shame can check us out or maybe we think that about somebody else we think maybe because someone else deals with depression or with anxiety that they're not worthy of God's attention 
I mean, have you ever heard that phrase that Christians shouldn't deal with depression because they should be grateful for all that God has done for them? Or maybe that we shouldn't be dealing with anxiety. We should be more spiritual than that. Naming those realities is something helpful that psychology can do. And so this is a difficult topic for us to engage in. Mental health is a topic that's difficult to engage in because of stigmas and because of shame. Now this leads us to our next topic, which is mental health and why we should talk about this as a church. To understand the context behind this, it's important for us to understand a little bit of history. Sigmund Freud is the founder of psychotherapy and is a seminal figure in psychology. And one of the things that he was known for was making arguments against the existence of God. He was an ardent atheist. And he would say that uh, belief in God is really a result of our projection. We project things that we like and we need, and God is nothing more than wishful thinking. Of course, um, he was also subject to the reverse of that very same thinking because he was a proponent of repression. And so it could be said that his denial of the belief in God was nothing more than his repression because he didn't want to believe in God. Well, anyways, uh, Sigmund Freud set things up in a kind of adversarial relationship so the church and psychology didn't get started off in the best foot. But these days, the situation has changed quite a bit. And you find a lot of Christians in the field of psychology because psychology does a lot of things to help our souls. And so let me just point to two different passages in the New Testament that help us to see that better. The first is Romans chapter 12. It reads, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So I just want to highlight here this phrase, the renewing of our minds. One of the things that psychology is so good with is it helps us to dig into our thought process. It helps us to be introspective and that helps us to renew our minds. Now the renewing of our minds, um, I really think it has at least two parts to it. There's more, but at least two parts. And the first part is learning to uncover our past thoughts, our history, and the things that we've gone through in life, our experiences, and being able to analyze those things. And if there are things that harm our ability to live with God, to be able to put them aside. The second thing is to be able to hold on to in faith the new things that Jesus brings into our life. So there are two sides of renewing our mind. And I find that psychology is extremely helpful in helping with the first thing of really letting go and being able to analyze and, in, and see how our past impacts our present. Um, there's another passage here that I want to point to. It's a corollary or maybe you want to call it a cross-reference to Romans. It's also written by Paul here in Philippians chapter 3. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that he's trying to actively forget things, but he's saying that he is looking at his past in a different light. He's no longer holding on to his past with the same weight or the same type of authority or the same type of um, importance. He is now learning to hold on to Jesus with that same weight and put his faith in the things of God. Okay, moving on, another passage that we want to look at when it comes to psychology in the church. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. It reads, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So have you ever been surprised by anger in your own life? Maybe you found yourself rather explosive over a situation that you were in in life? Or have you ever found yourself really surprised by someone else's angry and explosive anger? Or have you ever been told by a loved one that they were surprised at how you responded to something with so much anger in your life? Uh, I bring this up because strong emotions are a part of our lives and sometimes we react very strongly to situations or scenarios as we encounter them. And one thing that psychology is very good at doing is it's helpful in helping us understand where these strong emotions come from. They come from someplace and they do have a history. And psychology is very effective in helping us see where some of these strong emotions um, find their origin. Maybe in a family relationship, maybe in some trauma, trauma that we've experienced. Um, because we've all kind of seen this, pressing down our strong emotions doesn't make them go away. They oftentimes kind of spew out sideways in ways that we don't expect. Sometimes. Um, in our bodies we begin to somatize and we begin to feel that in a painful way like we can't sleep or we have back pain or shoulder pain or sometimes uh, pressing down emotions uh, leads to other um, psychological difficulties like depression or anxiety so those are things that psychology is very helpful uh, in helping us to connect now, like I said, our third point today, we're gonna to be having a panel. So I'm excited to introduce to you three of our panelists, and they're all members of ACCESS, uh, Jessica Lewis, uh, Jenny Wang, and Victor Chow. All three are mental health professionals, and I've asked them to share a little bit about their stories and their calling, their sense of calling with God to help all of us get inspired and maybe go a little bit deeper with this topic. I taught high school English in the public school system for four years, and I really enjoyed spending time with the students and getting to know them. And I found myself as an English teacher focusing on character development and asking them to think about how they related to the characters in the stories, how might they grow in their own personal lives. Um, 
And so additionally, I was disturbed by some of the stories that they would share with me about themselves. And I thought, you know, I really need more training and education in psychology to be an effective teacher um, to these kids. So around about the same time, I met a student's mother who was a therapist in private practice. And so the idea occurred to me that perhaps that was the next step for me. And so I applied, went to graduate school at University of Houston, uh, and that started my journey into this field. For me, this very much connects with my life with God. Um, I find the message in Isaiah 61 to be very compelling, and I'm going to read a bit here, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I have experienced this comfort, this release from darkness, this oil from joy, from my own experience being in counseling with a therapist. And I seek to offer this same hope to my clients. I decided to pursue a career in psychology when I was in college, actually studying to become an accountant. And um, being a child of immigrants, a lot of the career choices were very practical. And so becoming an accountant was one that my parents thought, well, why not? And I kind of went along with it because I had no idea what I truly wanted to do anyway. But while I was in college, though studying and coursework was fine, I knew I was deeply unhappy because it didn't satisfy my desire to connect with people. And so I took my first Psychology 101 class when I was a junior in college, and it just blew my mind. I realized that there was an entire career that really fit my interests and my desires to help people in a more intimate way. So when I work with my clients, I feel that it is a way in which God is utilizing me as a tool to help people. And I see God in such profound ways because I see people overcome such difficulties with trauma, with um, depression, with grief, with loss. And I see how a lot of the process is taking so much brokenness and moving towards restoration and wholeness which I kind of believe that that's what God is all about. And so I see him show up in these ways for clients, and that also fortifies my beliefs in how he does that even in my life. And so being a psychologist allows me to see God in um, a very communal sort of way. I see humanity with so much more compassion because I see the darkness and yet as a therapist and as a psychologist, I'm tasked with holding the light and the hope until people can carry it for themselves. And so I just love my job. I love being able to be involved in people's lives in this sort of way. I don't have an exciting story of how I got into the field of psychology and counseling, but I do have a roundabout one. I went uh, to college not knowing what I wanted to do and I graduated from a degree in East Asian studies. Uh, the only benefit I got out of that was um, when my wife and I went to visit Japan as our last hurrah before our first uh, child, Caleb, was born. And I got to use my uh, understanding of the language to get us around as tourists, get, get ourselves around as tourists. But after um, graduating as an undergrad, um, 
I talked to my uh, former InnoVarsity staff um, worker, uh, and she suggested that I think about the field of counseling uh, to get a master's in psychology. I really didn't know much about the field. Uh, I'd never received any sort of psychological services uh, at that point in time, but I thought I'd look into it. And it seemed that uh, something that might be able to interest me uh, since uh, I did want to help people and others have had told me that um, I was a good listener and approachable and um, I could encourage others. So I applied for a uh, degree uh, in uh, um, master's in counseling psychology up uh, at a school in uh, Deerfield, Illinois, in Chicago called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, long story short, uh, I was uh, not mature enough yet, I think, to handle the course load. So I dropped out of the program after about a year and a half, although I did enjoy some of the classes I took there. Uh, I went instead to work in the field of uh, information technology with the help of a friend. Um, and having gained some skills there, when I moved down to Houston, I continued to work in the IT field for about another three years or so. But during that time, I sensed the growing dissatisfaction that this wasn't the field for me um, for the foreseeable future. So uh, I thought that perhaps God was tugging me, uh, prompting me to go back into the field uh, of psychology. So I looked into the program at Houston Baptist University, applied and got in there, and I came out with a master's in psychology degree. Um, fortunately, yes, this time I did finish. Um, and after having uh, done an internship, required an internship for a couple of years, uh, I came out with my license in professional counseling. I think the place where psychology and my faith intersect um, lie in the following areas. One, uh, in terms of assessing my own internal life, like why, asking myself why I think or feel the way I do um, or how I approach God. I think psychology, at least the approach to asking these questions myself has helped me to um, examine my faith more. So that's one area where my faith and the field of psychology has intersected. Um, and in the other area, uh, more practically, was um, just learning to empathize um, more effectively with others, understanding where others are coming from, uh, walking a mile in their shoes, so to speak. Uh, one of the fundamental principles of being a, a therapist or professional counselor is uh, learning how to empathize with others. And I think uh, not only does that obviously help me be a better therapist, but also helps me to care and love others um, um, more effectively uh, as well. I believe psychology can help us love our neighbor well because it challenges us to understand ourselves better. So much of our relationships and how we show up in them is shaped by our past and our history and our dynamics. And often these go unquestioned. And some of these dynamics and patterns can actually be maladaptive, but when we don't develop awareness about them and examine them, we aren't capable of changing them. And so I believe psychology provides us with the language as well as some of the framework to understand these patterns and potentially choose differently and show up differently for our neighbors. And then by extension, loving them well. 
One of the goals in counseling is to grow in self-awareness. As we see things in our own lives that we are working on, as we learn to be gentle with ourselves and patient as we are growing, we can find the grace to offer this to others as well. When we see others having a struggle, rather than our first response be to criticize, we can show mercy. We can prioritize treating people with respect and we can learn to be curious about what they may need rather than deciding for ourselves that we know what is going on. Um, we can be sensitive and learn to ask questions and pursue real relationship with our neighbor. Even with all the progress that's been made over the years highlighting the importance of mental health issues, there's always gonna be some level of challenge for most people to talk about their personal mental health because it is such an intimate and vulnerable topic. We might be reluctant talking about it because we feel unsafe or uh, we're afraid we'll be judged. Compounding um, this are the cultural messages that many of us grew up with, whether it's uh, one of shame and silence regarding these issues or one that tells us to uh, be independent and go at it on our own, um, bucking up when we're down uh, and pulling ourselves up um, instead of asking others for help when we need it. Uh, so I, I think these are just a few reasons uh, people are reluctant talking about mental health issues. I'm sure this varies from person to person but some things that I hear most from people are things like, you know, I should be stronger. I don't want to bother anyone with my problems. So many people are depending on me. And the sense that if you have a problem, <clears throat> if you don't feel well, that perhaps you are inconveniencing someone by sharing that. And I think we have this idea that we need to be positive all the time. You know, we have cultural messages like, don't be a Debbie Downer, um, you know, don't be a part of the problem, be a part of the solution. And so when we face mental health challenges, I think there is still some embarrassment or shame around not being able to just handle it. I think there are societal factors like the message some men have received even from childhood that you know boys don't cry or that girls like drama and these cultural narratives serve to reinforce the stigma around talking about or asking for support with our mental health. So depression and suicidality are really large topics. And I thought I would just offer a few thoughts on how the church community can help to support somebody who's struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts. Within depression treatment, there are two specific areas that I believe the church can help with. One is increasing people's social engagement. When somebody's depressed, they tend to withdraw from others. And so the church can provide a network in which we can check in on people. We can consistently show up in their lives. Um, 
even when they don't feel up to it or kind of their usual selves. The church can also provide opportunities for activities, right? Running clubs, going out to the movies before everything happened with the pandemic, um, showing up for people in ways where they can get out and be active. Because in depression, people often feel less competent, less pleasure, and less mastery in their lives. And so they tend to not want to engage. But the church community can provide a space in which they can show up imperfectly, vulnerably, and um, still enjoy slices of their day or their week. And I think that's really important. One note about suicidality is that the research tells us that when we ask people blatantly or plainly about their thoughts of self-harm, it doesn't increase their desire to engage in self-harm. And so I think that if this is somebody you know pretty well, asking them about these thoughts um, can provide an opportunity for us to get people connected with the care and support that they need, um, especially during critical times. Well, unfortunately, this is a rampant problem and we absolutely can do better as the church when it comes to educating and helping folks get treatment before it's too late. You know, if you had a friend or a church member who complained about a terrible pain in their stomach, for example, or maybe they were having dizzy spells and fainting um, or even seizures, you know, we would absolutely recommend that they would see a doctor. We recognize that the stomach or the pancreas or the heart or organs and should be treated by a medical professional. Meanwhile, when someone shares about feeling sad or unmotivated or hopeless, we might think, hmm, maybe that's a character issue. You know, maybe they're lazy. Um, maybe they just need to read the Bible or utilize more self-control. Um, you know, hearing a message like this from a church leader or a pastor could be potentially devastating for someone who is struggling with mental health issues. Raising awareness that mental health challenges can stem from our brains, which is an organ, um, you know, from our physical bodies, and the importance of visiting with a counselor or a medical mental health professional is certainly one place where psychology and faith intersect. And advocating for wellness models within spiritual formation where we take care of our souls, minds, and bodies can be another place where the church can put forth helpful messages. All in all, I think AXIS has done a pretty good job at encouraging uh, people to address issues of mental health. Um, I think a lot of what's contributed to that is making uh, counseling services available for people, uh, such as partnering with ministries like ShieldBear. Uh, but it also comes from establishing a culture of welcome, acceptance, uh, and promoting vulnerability and authenticity uh, in our congregation. Um, that comes from the messages that we hear from the front, from pastors sharing about their own personal difficulties, uh, which I know we all appreciate. Uh, but uh, as we continue going down the path 
of uh, normalizing mental health issues. I think it's important that each of us uh, take steps of courage to speak up and share vulnerability about our issues so that everyone uh, would feel comfortable talking about um, their own um, challenges. Well, first of all, having a pastor give a message like this and include mental health professionals is wonderful. Um, I think when people hear their pastors and other leaders affirming counseling or even telling a personal story from the pulpit uh, of how they or their family benefited from counseling or psychology or even medication, I think this can go a long way in breaking down those stereotypes about mental health and seeking treatment. Churches can offer classes on soul care and depression or anxiety, um, maybe host a support group for a depression bipolar alliance, um, maybe a grief support group. Um, you know, this highlights the value that we have for providing brave spaces for people to be open about the struggles they are facing and find support and care rather than having to hide or go somewhere else with their pain. I believe access in the church at large can help address mental health topics um, simply by talking about them. A lot of times people don't have spaces that feel safe in which they can talk about their mental health struggles or even just everyday struggles. And so the church provides a safe space in which that can happen. And they can also bolster that by having experts and speakers come in and talk about mental health topics. Oftentimes, people don't understand how different um, mental health difficulties may manifest in themselves. And so sometimes people don't realize that they've struggled with anxiety their entire lives until they've heard it characterized and um, described by a mental health professional. And so the church plays an important role in providing safety and education. I also believe that the church has a role in dispelling this myth that an individual who struggles with mental health difficulties somehow just doesn't have enough faith. I think that that has barred individuals from seeking treatment and possibly suffering for a lot longer than they needed to. And so I believe that the church really plays an important role in changing that narrative. And finally, I believe churches provide such excellent sources of social support, which are crucial for individuals struggling with mental health difficulties. As we wrap up today, hey, I wanna say a big thank you to our panelists for sharing with us today. Thank you to Jessica and to Jenny and to Victor. Thank you for sharing your stories with us and for helping us go a little bit deeper with this topic. And I really appreciate it. And if you wanna say your thanks, if you're listening in today and you're just tuning in, uh, leave a comment below or give a thumbs up and really show some appreciation for our panelists. Now, two things before we go. If something in this message today stirred within your soul and you're wanting to connect more on the topic of mental health or maybe discuss uh, something that um, you might be experiencing in your own life, email us at staff at accesslive.org. We would love to journey with you and talk more deeply about this topic. We can help you find resources. We can help you connect with counselors if need be, but we'd just love to connect with you. So thank you for tuning in today and listening in. 
And the second thing is this, we're gonna be saying our sending prayer together. So let's pray this together. And as we do so, let's pray this from the heart. Loving God through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen.